There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in town at Grant's microphone. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me tonight is retired NYPD detective and straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. How are you doing? I'm doing good, and I couldn't help it, but I had to get another Italian from Brooklyn. And uh, we got <laughs> – I love Italians, please. Uh, we got retired Brooklyn – Assistant District Attorney Michael Vecchioni, who was the chief of the Homicide Bureau in Brooklyn, but he's also an author of several books. I'll put them up on the screen. This is his latest, Homicide is My Business. And he, this is another one, Crooked, Crooked Brooklyn. Now, I'm not going to focus on that. I just want you to know the credentials of this man. And we're going to speak about the Idaho case. It's two weeks uh, this case has been in the public eye, a national, international case. And we as citizens of this country, we expect our police to make arrests on major cases. And maybe we're spoiled because we expect it to happen really quickly. And when it doesn't, we freak out. And especially the press. The press gets all bent out of shape and they start pointing fingers and you get all these talking heads coming out of the woodwork and I want to put a little sanity to this and bring in some sane people. And that's why I have Phil Grimaldi with me tonight and former Brooklyn District Attorney, Assistant District Attorney, Michael Vecchioni. Mike, what's your biggest concerns right now? Two weeks is up in this horrific case where four college kids from the University of Idaho were slaughtered in their sleep at knife point. Well, I think, you know, you guys being detectives and, and being, you know, on this, having been on the street and done this work, know that the longer a case goes, the more difficult it is to solve. And uh, and that is really what my biggest concern is. You said it, Bill, we're two weeks into the case. And um, and even though we don't know, we as the public don't know what the police have been doing, uh, they may be doing uh, and may be on the verge of solving this. But if they're not, then the more time passes, the more difficult it's going to become to uh, to solve this case. And um, and there's one other little thing. There are so many people involved in this case, um, so many hands, so many eyes in terms of law enforcement that you hope that they're not stepping on each other in terms of what they're doing. And um, and those are the two biggest concerns that I have at this point. You know, Mike, I always say that in these especially in these major cases, more is not always better. Correct. Because sometimes you need to fine tune the investigation. And if there's too many hands, that that's that it with the hands come the egos. Yep. And the egos are sometimes more dangerous than the hands. Phil, 
Yeah, you absolutely. Talk with your hands. Come on, let, tell us about it. <laughs> let me tell you something, Billy. All right. No, all kidding aside, you're making a good point, Billy, because a lot of times um, when too many people get in, uh, a lot of times the case could be going in a certain direction and the egos, whether it be a boss or different agencies, start to get in and, and someone could be stubborn that they're interested in you know, taking the investigation in a different direction. That's dangerous. And Mike brought it up before we went on the air. We were talking about it. That's going to be more uh, stuff that uh, a defense attorney can go into to try and mount a defense if someone is arrested and the prosecution moves forward. So that's one of the concerns. Um, you would think, though, with this type of a case, I mean, uh, it seems like uh, very horrific. Four people murdered in their sleep with a knife. The uh, police have come out and said publicly several times, one of the individuals, possibly more than one, but at least one were targeted. So I think that kind of takes the uh, serial killer scenario off the table for me uh, with all the other facts. I mean, the serial killer uh, possibility is still there because the case hasn't been solved. So anything's possible at this point. However, I'm not giving it a lot of percentages with regard to what I think is going to be the outcome of this case. Uh, I said before, and I'm going to say it again, I believe it's going to be someone from that community, that local community, that's possibly familiar with hunting and with that type of a knife, since they've indicated the specific type of a knife that they believe it to be. So uh, you would think with all of the uh, 103 pieces of evidence that they've recovered, they said that this week, uh, a lot of the uh, forensic stuff would be coming back from the lab. So I think things may be heating up and we're just not hearing about it. It seems to be quiet. Uh, coming from law enforcement. So let's just hope sooner rather than later that there's going to be a successful conclusion to this case with an arrest. And you know, one of the problems, one of the problems early on in this uh, investigation was the messaging put out by the Moscow police department. Obviously they haven't had a murder in seven years, so they're not experienced with this and including it with the investigation is how to get the messaging out. That's very difficult, but that's also very important. Early on in this investigation, they said, oh, no one has anything to worry about. That was a bad message to put out there because, yes, everyone has something to worry about. There's a killer out there that just killed four people. Unless you have him in handcuffs or he's dead, we got something to worry about right now. Mike, you want to talk upon that? Yeah, well, I, I think, yes, I thought that was a very bad message to send. And, and, and it, what I'm about to say ties in with what Phil just talked about in terms of a target. They said that it seems as if these people were targeted. I, I, I disagree a little bit about that, not ne that, that necessarily taking out the fact that it could be a serial killer. Just because someone is targeted doesn't mean that the target is someone that the, vic that the, the bad guy knows. They could be targeted for a reason that only the bad guy, um, you know, know and keeps in his head. Serial killers kill people and kill many people for, for sometimes one particular reason or maybe two particular reasons. And, and he or she targets a person who fits into that little box. So I believe that there's a big definite, there's a, targeting is a wide definition. And just because they say that it was that they were targeted doesn't necessarily mean that the killer was picking one of these four people and went after those four people. It could have been uh, for a reason other than, you know, than, than serial killing. I think it could also be, I don't believe it is a serial killer, but I just want to make sure that the public knows that the fact that they say they were targeted doesn't eliminate a serial right. killer from, from possibilities. That that's really what I, I think needs to be said. Um, I just think I want to go back to what we talked about a little bit before in terms of the number of people involved, Bill. Uh, 
I, I, I once, and, and what happens is um, that when there's so many people involved, everyone is trying to do what they can and, and essentially solve the case or provide enough help and information so that others who are in charge of the case solve the case. And they sometimes go off and say things either on either in on a, in a statement, maybe in a call to nine one one or to um, to a, a detective person on the street. They're talking about. It turns out that what they're saying isn't necessarily the fact uh, or a fact in the case. I'll give you an example. I had a case involving a double homicide: two police officers killed on the street by a, a member of then the Black Liberation Army. When the cops first arrived at the scene, you can imagine there were thousands, hundreds of guys that cops that res, re, responded to that case. The first call in over the air to uh, to Central was we're looking for a five foot five, five foot six Hispanic who has gotten away. You know what the guy, the defendant was a six foot, six foot two black African-American man who had gotten into a car and taken off. What the cop was doing was looking down at one of the victims. The, the bad guy's partner got killed. He was this five foot five, five foot six Hispanic, and he 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 conflated it. He's instead of saying that's the def- that's one of the victims, he said, Well, this is who we're looking for. And I gotta tell you, I tried that case. That was a huge problem because the defense attorney kept harping on the fact that they got the wrong guy. They framed this guy. They got, look who they were looking for right when the problem happened, when the victim, when the crime happened. So that's Well, you know, Mike, also with that, you know, you have all of these FBI behavioral analysis people. Right. And I'm not trying to put down the FBI, but I don't have any faith in them. During the Beltway Sniper, they said the guy was a male white in his 30s. It was a male black 17. Come on. Yeah. Yep. And, 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 you know, and the same thing, the Unabomber, they didn't ID the Unabomber. The guy's brother called in and gave him up. Correct. So Correct. I don't trust that science. I trust that they're trying as hard as they can to use that. But it's really not a science. It's sort of like a junk science. No. And it's a it's a product of television. You know, crime. CSI was a very popular. Uh, I'm sorry. Criminal Minds was a very popular TV show and is back on the air now. And it's talking about, once again, a serial killer. Who may be have who may have struck in different parts of the country at different times, or may have had a a group of people who are copycatting him. So you know everyone is is everyone's and that's what I'm afraid of. People's statements are sometimes uh, uh, colored by the the idea that of what they have seen on television. Or there's too many talking people. heads with this case. Way too many. Yeah. Let me just play this, guys. Live now from Fox. It's been two weeks since four University of Idaho students were found stabbed to death in their room. While police and federal said they are hundreds of leads, notes have been named and there are still so many questions. I do want to bring in Joseph Scott Morgan. He is a forensics professor at Jacksonville State University and does have a hit podcast. Thank you so much for being here with us. We appreciate it. Hey, good morning, Joshua. Thanks for having me. Of course. First off, your thoughts on this case that so many people are paying so close attention to? Uh, well, the first term that comes to mind is complex. And uh, just just the sheer volume of physical evidence that's going to be found. 
at the scene uh, could be quite daunting uh, for all of those involved. Uh, the biological evidence, specifically as it's related to blood evidence, and of course from that uh, springs DNA. And so uh, it, it will make matters very difficult to weed through. The trick is, is how well are you planned in advance for an event like this? And what resources do you have at your disposal? The rub is, however, when you're talking about a smaller jurisdiction, they're not used to handling a case of this magnitude. It's not uh, a knock against them. That's the reality of it. Uh, it's rural America, and they don't deal with quadruple knife-related or sharp person injury-related homicide. Uh, not many people do, actually. Uh, this is kind of uh, an outlier statistically. Yeah, and that's where a lot of the questions come into play because you don't have that many quadruple homicides that are happening in Idaho, let alone in Moscow, Idaho, involving four university students that are murdered there from a for. You know, we're not talking about quadruple homicides in New York City either. It's a rarity anywhere, anywhere in the yeah. world. If four people are murdered at the same time, that's a rarity. And, and you know, of course. put down Idaho and Moscow, Idaho. You know, if that happened in New York City, I think the, the biggest murder I had was a, like a, a double or a triple. I never had a quadruple, you know. And that will, you know, will uh, challenge any police department, any detective bureau, any DA's office and their investigators. Phil, what do you got? Yeah. I had a triple and uh, it was solved rather quickly, fortunately for us. But yeah, these are complicated cases. Um, you know, when you get uh, even a double is complicated because now instead of dealing with one victim and one set of victimology, now you have two. And, and now in this case, you have four. So uh, listen, the bottom line is this. When they do come up with a suspect, they've recovered 103 pieces of evidence that they're talking about, forensic evidence. That, to me, is science. Now, when we're talking about this behavioral analysis unit from the FBI, it's kind of like, listen, I don't want to put them down. It's kind of like guesswork, though. They use a lot of statistics and stuff like that, and they come up with uh, a, a pattern, or they come up with what they believe is the profile of what this type of killer would be. And a lot of times, it's it's pretty good. It's, it's probably close at the end of the day, but I don't think they're going to be able to say, here's your man, go get him. That's not what's going to happen with the behavioral analysis unit from the FBI. Uh, so listen, I'm sure that they're going to take any help they can get, especially from the FBI. They do have great crime labs and stuff like that. Hopefully it is some very competent investigators as well. But the, again, Bill, you and I have talked about it. FBI doesn't work on murder cases on a daily basis. A lot of time it's white collar crime and different things like that. So uh, let's just hope that everybody's putting their best foot forward. It's a very unusual case even though they didn't have a murder in seven years. I'm sure the detectives are trained in inter interview, interrogation, evidence collection, things like that. So I I'm confident that we're going to get a, a successful conclusion to this case. Let's just hope that there's no mistakes made that could be detrimental to the prosecution going forward. You Mike, know, I you want to talk about the, uh, the person, everyone has touched upon this, but the personal nature of using a knife. Oh, yeah. And especially in this case, using like what has been sort of identified by the pathologist as a K-bar knife. Uh, you want to speak upon that? I do, because I've had a couple of cases when I was in the Homicide Bureau involving a knife. And a knife is a very it's, it's obviously a very personal um, type of of homicide because 
you're, it, you know, this sounds stupid, but you're up close and personal. You have to be up close and you have to essentially touch the person, um, you know, as many times as this person did, um, that that's, that's getting, you know, as personal as it could possibly be. But there's one other thing about a knife that I think will be, hopefully will be part of the answer that they, that, or, or the, the, the evidence that they use to come up with the answer. And that is what happens to a knife when you use it as violently as this guy apparently did to his own hands. A knife doesn't stay necessarily stay stationary in your hand when you're doing that kind of slicing or, or it's thrusting. It slides. And unless it's got some kind of a guard between the, the, the uh, blade and the handle, then- Mike, I think this knife has something called the hilt. Yeah, that it does is the guard, but you could see your hand could still slide over that. Without a doubt, don't forget, there's a lot of blood too. The blood's going to make it even more slippery. And like you said, the thrusting now, when you thrust into a, a human body, you're going to hit something hard at some point, you're going to hit a yeah. bone or an organ, and that's going to cause that the hand to possibly slip. slip. So, exactly. yeah, so, so if there is a glove, let's say a person's wearing a glove, if it's a sharp instrument, and obviously it sounds like it was very sharp. Uh, that could cut through and cause bleeding Precisely. and injury to the person's hands. That, that's why. And number one, and the other thing, Bill, is that they, you know, they're they're speculating that it's this K-bar knife. They don't really know. They know that it's a sharp blade, probably a hunting knife of some kind. But beyond that, the what what I believe the I believe the answer will be in there because I think that that person who is the vic, who is the defendant here or the 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 bad guy is it has left blood his own blood in and among the blood that they found in that uh, in that place among other things i think that the answer is in the forensics and you could go and, and interview a thousand people and may never come up with the answer but the science the real science could give you the answer because of either dna or something else in that uh in that crime scene that will help them uh, solve the case it, it's you know uh, all you it, I think that they are just beginning to get the answers from the from the forensics that they have been collecting over two weeks. It takes, as you guys know, it takes a long time. And I think that they're not going to tell us that they have maybe identified a person or persons to, um, you know, who have done this. But they may have. They may have gotten an idea already because I think that forensics are going to tell you who did this. That's what where I and. And I believe, and I believe it's, I, I don't think it's a serial killer, quite frankly, guys. I think it's somebody who, and this is not, I'm not being a genius when I say this, someone who knows these people because of two things. One, he had to know the combination of, um, he had to know that that sliding door, if that was part of the, the security guard, he had to know how to get into that sliding door. And he was, a, and he knew where in that house he was going to find the people that he was looking to kill because he did not go downstairs and kill those two girls on the, in the, in the first floor, the basement floor. So, so that's why I believe it's somebody who is involved with that, with that group of people or someone who knew them. And, well, you know, Mike, you know, I a hundred percent agree with you. I also think that it's 85 to 90, like people want to say, Oh, it could be a woman. No, I don't think so. Because, First of all, 85 to 90% of, of uh, murders are done by males. Yeah, I don't you know, think it's so a woman I think either. if you go in and no. the rage that was uh, exhibited in this murder, I think it screams out male. 
Yeah, people can say, oh, it could be a one. No, I don't think so. I Bill, I just want to make a point about the forensics that Mike was just talking about. Now, there's reports that, now listen, he spent time in this house. He killed four people. He slaughtered four people. He didn't do it in five seconds. And it looks like he spent some amount of time inside the house. They also reports that perhaps he locked doors or pulled doors closed on the bedrooms where the, where the victims were found. And that's why there was that confusion in the beginning about 911 called saying that a person was unconscious. Maybe they tried to get in. They weren't answering the door. They thought maybe they were drunk from the night before. Yeah. They called it in as an unconscious. Now, with that said, if a person is staying in that apartment or that that part of the house for a period of time, hairs could fall off their body. There's a thing called touch DNA. All you have to do is touch a surface and you leave DNA, obviously blood. So again, I think you're right, Mike, that there's going to be the key to the case to tie in the perpetrator to the homicide is going to be in the forensics. Obviously, fingerprints could be left as well. And then there's a thing, Bill and I have talked about it before, called major case fingerprints, where if you leave just the tip of a finger or something from your palm, uh, major case prints, they put ink all over your hand and they get the prints, they recover any part of your hand that will leave some type of an identifying print. So something like that, it doesn't have to be a major print. It could be just a little tip of a finger. That's something that'll be able to uh, lock the person in that they were inside of that location. Absolutely. One of the most vicious cases that I ever tried involved just that. It involved a woman who was stabbed 60 times and, and it involved the bad guy leaving a palm print on the wall above where he left the woman on the floor. And when we got the guy, the first thing that, uh, that the police, the detectives did was they did, took major case prints. They took his entire palm. And by the time I got to the precinct to take a statement from him, they had already had him identified as being, you know, the guy who had, uh, who had left that print on the wall because his, his, because of the major case prints. So, um, so the forensics today are the way that that people get convicted, and you know, and it's and they're almost—I don't want to say foolproof, but they're they're very difficult cases to to fight if it's done right. And that's why I go back to the idea that there are a lot of people involved in this, and 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 I think that the more people involved, the more chance a defense attorney will find something among the paperwork that all of these people have to file and turn over to him that could help him form a defense that could help get this guy off from, uh, you know, get this guy found not guilty. It's, it's, I, I, oh, when I first heard about this, I said, Oh my God, there are just so many people here sticking their nose in and too God, many cooks spoil the broth as they absolutely. say, right? <laughs> Paperwork. You know what I used to hate to tell you the truth as a def when I was a prosecutor, I'd get the police file. And I would have to start reading every detective or police officer's either DD5 or uh, initial report that came in. And I can't tell you. I say to I was looking at it and I say to myself, where did this guy get this fact? Because there's nothing in that I know of that is there. And it was it was just poorly written. And and somebody, instead of writing maybe something plural, writes it singular or singular instead of plural. And that is something that good defense attorneys jump on immediately when they have to try a case. And Absolutely. that's what I, I, you know, I used to tell guys in my office when I was doing a case and it was in charge and we were doing the investigation right in the office. We're talking to somebody, don't take notes. I didn't want them to take notes because 
first of all, I could remember things that I that, that I needed to remember. But I didn't want them to take notes because, again, when you're sitting down and you have to now type from the notes, which are notes, they're not verbatim as to what happened. Somebody could interpret something the wrong way, type it the wrong way, and now I'm stuck with it as, a, as the prosecutor. So um, that's a very big potential problem in this case, guys. Schmitty, thank you for the $5 super chat. Your comments, they told the cause just today for more evidence collection. Can you give your insight as to why it took so long to do so? Is this normal? No, it's, no, uh, it's, it's not, not normal. normal. It's, not. it's not normal. I think that they should have probably taken the cause away day one Absolutely. and brought them to a forensic facility to process it. I don't know why it took them more than two weeks to tow the cause away. Yeah. It just doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense to me. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed, go on our YouTube. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. If you want to contribute to our podcast, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships. And you see the folks in the chat with the green font. They uh, they actually pay to see us perform every 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 pod, every one of our podcasts. And we appreciate them. I want to play a little bit of this. Um, there's a lot. There's another, another FBI sort of talking head, but let's see what he has to say. The ability to, oh, this is uh, the father. to grieve the way that I, I want to grieve. I want to be able to have justice first. Oh, and that was the heartbroken father of a University of Idaho student, one of four murdered in their sleep earlier this month. Police now getting ready to release the crime scene. Once investigators finish examining the site, collecting any evidence. Joining us former FBI investigator Bill Daly. Just absolutely heartbreaking, Bill, to hear from that father there, who, you know, not only lost his child, but still has no answers and no suspect in custody. How are we here this far out from when this happened? Well, Sandra, first of all, you know, this is a very complex scene. In other words, what I'm saying here is that, you know, I just want to comment upon that. That is like typical of the of the press blaming the police like two weeks have gone by you haven't arrested anybody like yeah. as if it's so simple to do that and that narrative goes out to the entire public and then people start pointing at the police as if they're doing something wrong absolutely Instead of the Bill, fact that... go ahead mike no i was going to say you had you had two floors to cover you had four uh three bedrooms to cover plus the the the, the means of entry and then whatever happened outside, you had to, to worry about that on that, that porch, whether there's evidence there. So that's a lot of ground that has to be gone over minutely. I mean, they've got to go over it with a fine tooth comb and with, with um, you know, with microscope, uh, with uh, magnifying glasses in order to, not literally, but figuratively, to find enough evidence to convict or to make an arrest. So, But Mike, it makes the public look at the police as if they're not doing their job. Exactly. You know? I, I understand that. And, you know, and it's um, it's a fine line that the cops and police departments walk in this situation, because do you give out information to make sure that the peep, the pre, uh, the press is kept at bay or do you hold it back? Because the, the greater good here is to make a good case and to make a case that's going to stick in court. So, um, you know, you have to have a police department that uh, that doesn't necessarily uh, care so much about this publicity being out there or this negative publicity um, because they're doing their job. And, you know, there aren't a lot of people in this country who 
who um, who who think that way. But that's the way you have to think. Um, I believe anyway. Yep. It's not something where it's a single family home where you have a couple of, you know, you have a pet and a couple of people living there. This is one that has had multiple people and multiple tenants. Who knows the last time it was cleaned? You have, you have hairs, fibers, fingerprints, maybe other DNA that's around. And for police and forensic experts to sort through this, it takes a while. So this investigative onion, if you will, will, you know, is taking a while to reveal itself. At the same time, there's no individual suspect that's kind of jumped out either by past behaviors comments, threats, or what have you, that they kind of be able to kind of focus in on. It appears as though it's someone further back around the orbit of one or several of these people who may be responsible. For so I was hoping to learn something here when they say they're, they're close to releasing the crime scene. Does that mean that they're close to turning over that house to its owner, assuming the kids were renting from a landlord there, that that's it? People come in and clean, and this is done. The search inside that house is done. Yeah, that's that's basically it. I mean, there could be a reason why, if there's a prosecution before, they need to go back to either take photos or do something else in the home. Because the cars are still parked outside. The students who were killed. So what it means, Sandra, is at this point, what they've done is they've contained the crime scene. They preserved it as best they can. And now they're ready to say, we've collected all the evidence we feel as though we can collect here. And now turn it over to the owners to clean up and put it back into shape. Correct me if I'm wrong with the slow release of information from the authorities, which could be a strategy, right, on their part um, to protect what they know, to not let on to the suspect that they know uh, mm-hmm. the information they have. But there's a lot of rumors out there and a lot of room for speculation. And now these rumors have been debunked by the police there in Idaho, including that red Mustang that was near the scene. They say that was not involved. There was a February overdose death in town. Mm -hmm. They're saying that was not related. Um, This case, they are saying, is not uh, linked to any other murders. Mm -hmm. That is interesting to me that they can rule that out without having the suspect in custody. Tell us in a second. The victims were not tied or gagged, and the dog skin nearby, which we all knew Mm -hmm. that story initially, is not connected to this. Mm -hmm. So tell me... Your thoughts, thoughts based, based on, on those, those debunked, debunked rumors. Well, first, first of all, well, those rumors are ones that just been kind of created and floating around. They're going to come from some authoritative body. Uh, the, 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 the other crimes that were committed, the ones in Washington and Oregon, you know, they they rule those out because they've probably looked at the forensic evidence. They've combed through and they've kind of said, no, this does not match the profile. At the same time, to my profile, the FBI does have their profiles and the behavioral analysis people involved in this case. So they too have been able to kind of weigh in on what things get ruled in and ruled out. But it, it is something at this point that is is not something that's we can tell right now is solved in a 60 minute melodrama television um, production. Uh, this was a while. The, the crime, crime scene, scene was, was probably, probably very complicated, complicated as I mentioned before about other, other factors of people being in the home previously, as well as mixture of DNA and separating those. I've got to leave it there. Are you confident that they'll find the suspect? I am, okay. I am. All right, Bill, good to have you on set here. He was one of the better talking heads that I've yeah, seen. He was. he was pretty good. You know, he wasn't, uh, you know, all these guys want to be the genius that says, yeah, I think it's a serial killer. And, you know, I, I get, I get, it makes me nauseous, you know? You know, the and interesting guys, part about what he said was, and, and the thing that, that kind of, I didn't even think about before is that that's a, 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 the kind of place where kids of that, of that age are probably there every day, every weekend partying, Drinking, who knows what's going on in that place? So there's got to be stuff. Or I'm sure that they 
that they 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 had to you know collect more than they ever thought they would have to collect in terms of of evidence from that scene because of all like of I the said they needed elimination fingerprints and elimination DNA with the yeah. amount of people that were in of that course. house w without a doubt without a doubt when without they get a, a strange DNA that they don't know I mean that could be you know the fifty guys that were there last week having a party in the correct that house. correct correct and the same I, I think the blood evidence if it's commingled with the perpetrators of uh, blood that's going to be real key because uh, you know not everybody's coming in there and bleeding so to speak so I guess you know touch DNA fingerprints thing, different things like that of course there's a a lot of traffic in and out of that location it's a college house uh, off campus house so there's probably a lot of kids in and out of there yeah. uh, one one of the one of the family members was saying uh, I believe it was. Uh, uh, Kaylee, it might've been Kaylee's sister that, uh, you know, the, there was different things going on in the house and they didn't want, uh, anyone to think that, uh, if you come forward with information to the police, that you're going to be in trouble for, let's say underage drinking or narcotic use. We talked about that before that could be, uh, you know, holding back people that might've seen something because of some other illegal activity. She did stress when she said it in the interview, the police are here to solve a quadruple homicide that's what their interest is. That's what their uh, their goal is. So again, anybody that has information, uh, if if it's got something along with it that's criminal in nature, just give the information. You know th that might be the key to solving this uh, horrific crime. Folks, tonight our guests are Michael Vecchioni, retired Brooklyn Assistant District Attorney, who is the head of the Homicide Bureau in the Brooklyn DA's office. On the screen is his latest book, Homicide is My Business, Luigi the Zip. And uh, here's another crooked Brooklyn, Michael Vecchioni and Jerry Schmetterer. Uh, I know he's got a bunch of other books and he's he's writing a series of books, but very qualified individuals have on this show to talk about homicide investigation. And it's a breath of fresh air to have a different uh, point of view than Phil and I have. We come from, you know, the gumshoe. You know, let's let's wear out our shoes and uh, and get out there and talk to the public. Mike looks at it in a little different way because he's the one that's going to have to stand up in that courtroom and prosecute these cases. And, and that's a very important component to homicide investigation. Of course, a lot of people may not know it, but in Brooklyn and I guess throughout the five boroughs, anytime that you were working on a homicide and you wanted to make an arrest for murder, you had to get authorization from the DA's office. And the prosecutors in the DA's office were usually involved in the case with regard to steering it or asking for specific things to be done before a arrest was, was authorized for homicide. So again, that might be what's taking place in this case. Like Mike said, there could be someone that's identified or they think may be involved and the prosecutors that are going to wind up eventually prosecuting the case are saying, well, let's wait for the forensics to come back. Let's do this. They could be keeping their eyes on somebody. We don't know. And, you know, keeping a surveillance or, or, you know, keeping tabs on somebody that could be, uh, as, considered a person of interest or a suspect and prosecutor's office takes, takes a big part in these cases. And it's usually from the early onset of the case. Yeah. Because you know, when you do all of this work, when you, you guys do all this work, um, you don't want it just simply, you know, for naught, you want it to, 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 you know, turn into something that will hold this, that will hold first of all in a court of law and that some, guy who deserves to go to jail goes to jail. I mean, that's, that's basically what you're, what, what we want to have happen here. So, um, you know, so a prosecutor being involved as we were in Brooklyn, um, during the investigation, sometimes other times at the end of the investigation, and then 
being then we were consulted to enhance it in some way because I've done both. I've done both, you know, enhancing as well as being involved in an initial, you know, during the course of the initial investigation. But at the whole point of this was to look forward or it was to look to the trial and to make sure that the work of the police doesn't go for naught and that uh, somebody walks out of court, um, you know, with a, with a not guilty verdict because of some little thing that could have been corrected during the investigation or right after the investigation. So, Mike, uh, you know, I want to ask you something, though. I, I uh, not, not that I'm a soothsayer or I predict things, but for me, you know, being a homicide guy, I look at this perpetrator as I think some way he was disrespected in a way that such rage built up inside him. And only, and don't take this wrong, anyone who's listened, I think only a woman could do that to a man where he was maybe demasculated and he was just enraged. And that's what this, this personality of this murderer to me uh, what it looks like. Sounds like well, you're going into the behavioral analysis. Yeah, right? I don't mean to, but I think it, it does. No, you're right. You're right. I, I agree with you. I agree with criminal you. minds. Yeah, well, no. you know, think about it this way. The first two people that this, this individual killed were those two young women who were well, actually you know, Mike. It was the, it was the male and no, the I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we think it was correct. The you're yeah. correct. He came in on that. Yes, yeah. that's correct. But it, let's put it then, then, then let me switch this around. If that was, all he was there for was to just, you know, mayhem and to kill people. Well, then he stops and he goes and he leaves. He's killed two people. He's gone. He then goes up to another floor in the building uh, in the house and finds these two women and kills them. So I, I do think that there was something that happened, whoever with this particular killer and and one of the people in that uh, in that that house. I, I, I just feel feel it in my bones. And um you know, I, I just don't see this as being some guy who happened to be in Moscow that no. day and, and no. you know, wound up killing, you know, four people. You know, see, one thing I learned today, though, one of the new things you asked before, uh, Bill, is that, you know, there was a football game on campus that day. And and it held the stadium holds like 15 or 16,000 people. So, you know, so that's another factor that we have not talked about um, of people who were who were not necessarily part of that community who had come to the community to watch the football game, which makes it even more difficult for the police to eliminate people or to zero in on someone. Um, Mike, that's definitely a defense attorney uh, angle. A defense yeah. attorney would throw into the mix. Absolutely. Did you know there was a football game that day? Yeah, sixteen thousand people, and one of those people could have been a psychopathic absolutely. murderer. Yeah, and you know, yeah, I see and, that. and the quite frankly, Bill, the the best prosecutors are the guys who think like defense attorneys, because or women who think like defense attorneys, because if you don't stay ahead of you know ahead of what they are thinking, then you're going to get caught. And yeah. uh, and yeah. but to me, that's a factor that very well could you know could play in this. I'm not sure. Let, it does. let me make a point. Let me make a point about the crime scene real quick. I didn't mean to interrupt you there, Mike, but no, no, we go will, ahead. We really don't know how he went in and out of the location, but we know that Ethan and Kaylee were in that second floor bedroom and Madison and Zana were in the third floor bedroom. Now he could have gone in through the third floor, committed the homicide on the third floor, and then perhaps maybe the target was really on the second floor or someone from the second floor came up to hear the noise and he went down and he murdered those two. We really don't know what took place first. We don't know if, if, 
the couple was killed first off the two girls on the third floor were killed first. Now, right. more than likely, it seems like he came from the, the level, which was the second floor, the, the sliding door in the back. That's what seems most likely to me. You, you know, Phil, let me just, just let me just say something. Really, the second floor is, for all intents and purposes, is like a first floor. Because yeah, it's right, at the from ground the level. Exactly. And the first floor is really below. The basement. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. The, the first floor, I think, was put, that was the original structure. And I think the second part of it was added on. That's the way it appears to me. And I mean, there's been a lot of talking heads kind of agree with that. So it seems like that was a, a, an addition. But because of the terrain goes up, it's higher up. So it's higher up. So that's where the second floor comes in. Now right. you have that parking lot back there. You have some woods. It would most likely seem that he came in from that direction. Since no one on the first floor was alerted to an intruder, no one was harmed on the first floor. So my thinking is he either came in through that second floor, uh, the sliding glass door that's at, at the ground level of the back. Yeah. Or he got onto that deck and went through that second floor sliding door there. there there's two possibilities there. More than likely, it's it's the first possibility that he went in through that back door. And I think there were reports, and I can't confirm it, that, yeah, that back door was left open a lot of times. Yeah, there oh, was. There was one report. But this yeah. brings me back to what I said before. I'm not sure how anybody could say that the couple was killed first before the two young women. I, I don't, unless there's something that, that we're not being told, um, I, I just don't, and maybe the police know this already. Maybe they know. I think, I think good crime scene investigators might be able to figure it out. Bill and I talked about it because of cast off from the blood and what the struggle was, the defensive wounds, different things like that. I think if a good crime scene investigator gets in there and they study it, and it may take a little time. They'll probably be able to figure out who was killed first because of, you know, defensive wounds and maybe different things that if there's a sign of struggle and stuff like that. Yeah. And if they do know, if they can figure out where he came in, where he went out, and I'm saying he because I do believe it's a he, then, then I think that also, uh, you know, if, if the sliding glass door is very close to that bedroom where we believe the club couple was on that second floor, then more than likely it would indicate that that would be the first person or persons that were killed. But again, we don't know. We would, we don't have intimate knowledge of the case folder, but I do think, I think that good crime scene investigators would be able to figure that part of it out. I don't disagree with you. Well, now the, the father today, one of the, something that was, I think new to me anyway, said that his daughter, and I think that's Kaylee's father is who's been the yes. one who's talking, uh, had defensive. She, he was told by the police and the medical examiner that her, his daughter had defensive wounds on her. Um, I don't believe that there were there's any information that any of the other others the other yeah, three. Yeah, I, I think Zania Canodal had uh, defensive wounds. Oh, she also. did. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. but you know, they so, we were also told that they were sleeping, and then, you know, they must did they wake up when they were stabbed violently in the chest? Which is, I think this guy was going for a kill shot. You, you know, I, I stabbed. I agree. You know, he, you you know, know what? Uh, I think that uh, just your your instincts and your reaction, if someone's thrusting a knife into you and you feel that you're going to grab at it, so that may be where the defensive wounds came in, or struggling and fighting, you know, you're waking up, you're half asleep, someone's thrusting a knife into your chest and, you know, uh, you go into a panic, you go into a frenzy, that could be what it is too. But uh, we talked about this before and Bill just brought it up, a kill shot. If someone's asleep and you take that big Bowie knife and you get them good in the chest, I think there's going to be very little screaming 
you know, I don't think he'd be able to scream because of a sunken chest wound. And I think that that might incapacitate the person probably in the first or the second shot. And they said numerous, uh, each of the victims had numerous stab wounds. So again, there there may not have been struggle on some of the victims. And and it would have to, because think about this. If you have four people who are killed and, and, and there's no evidence uh, of that, one of them or two of them or three of them had gotten up because there was someone screaming to look to see what was going on, then this guy had to have been very, very strong. And, and he did use and did deliver a kill shot um, to, to virtually all of them because um, otherwise, how were they not, you know, screaming or fighting or some kind of, some kind of noise that, uh, that would have alerted the other three to, you know, to something going on in the house. And, um, and if they were alerted, then I don't think you would have had four people killed. I think you would have had, you know, the initial person and maybe another, but they would have gotten out. So, so I think that, you know, he, he was very, very strong and was able to, to get, find a spot on the body that he knew was going to be the kill shot. And, yeah. you know, the middle of the chest, he gets the heart and that's it, you know? Yeah. Idaho students go back to class after the long holiday weekend as police seem to have few leads in the murders of four students at their home off campus. I'm Angie Levy and welcome to the Law and Crime Sidebar Podcast. We're taking a clear look at what we know so far in the murders of those four students a little more than two weeks ago. Eddie Mogan, Kaylee Goncalves, Ethan Chapin, and Zanodal had been for the night and were killed sometime after they returned home in the early morning hours of November 13th. Maddie and Kaylee were captured on a video at the grub that was a food truck shortly before they went home for the night. They at the corner club bar for that. Ethan and Zana were dating and had been at a party at the Sigma Chi house earlier in the evening. Here's, Here's Captain, Captain Roger, Roger Lanier, Lanier of the, the Moscow, Moscow Police, Police Department, Department discussing the timeline so far. On the evening of November 12th and into the early morning hours of November 13th, Kaylee and Madison arrived home at approximately 1.45 a.m. after visiting a local bar and a street food vendor. I just want to say that they. one of the reasons I'm playing this is because They've been requesting video and still photos from the whole community. And that timeline was just changed from 145 to 156. So nine minutes later, uh, it's significant. There's nine more minutes that were unaccounted for. So as I said, they're continually getting video sent to the FBI website as well as still photos. Ethan and Zana were also out in the community at Sigma Chi, and they arrived home at approximately 1.45 a.m. Two surviving roommates who were also out in the community arrived home at approximately 1 a.m. Now, later that morning, it was 11.58 a.m., a 911 call was placed from one of the surviving mates' cell phones. They had actually called a friend of the house because they believed one of the people who was actually killed was sleeping and unconscious. Police and 911 call takers had actually spoken to more than one person at the home time. Autopsies revealed victims were all stabbed and some of them had defensive wounds. Others were stabbed as they were sleeping. 
police have said there were no signs of sexual assault. So far, police say they've been able to rule out some people related to the investigation. Joining me to discuss the very latest on this case is forensic. I just wanted to bring that some of these facts we already knew, but I want to highlight the fact of the timeline changing, the fact that the students are now back on the campus, right? And yeah. the fact that investigation is a continuous process of inclusion and exclusion. And that's what it is. You include people and you exclude people as you clear them. 100%. You know, I think the, uh, the it's a big fact that one of the factors that may very well play a, a major role here is that the students are back. And I don't know how many were around that day or that night or that afternoon or that weekend or whatever it was, but now that all of them are back, um, you may very well get somebody who walks into, uh, you know, a precinct up there and says, ah, I got to tell you about this particular guy. He had a fight with Kaylee or he had a fight with Maddie or something of that nature. Um, that, that, you know, you, you sh it, it, it may play a role here. And then finally, that will, will be the case. One other thing I just want to mention, do you guys believe that when they say that people have been eliminated, that it's, it's eliminated because of forensics or eliminated because of, uh, of some other, other, other reason? Because one of the things that could eliminate somebody um, is that they have enough or they have zeroed in on one particular guy or one particular individual um, who, and that's why they can eliminate these other people. So Mike, I want to speak on that real quick. Cause there yeah. was, uh, they talked about a video where these kids had gone to a food truck before they went home. And there was apparently someone in the background that looked to be milling, mulling around, possibly right. stalking. Now they said they cleared that person. I think they identified that person. They probably got a good solid alibi on that guy. Doesn't mean that down the line, there can't be some new, you know, somebody comes forward with some new evidence and says, you know, I lied to say he was with me or whatever. And he could be put back into the pool of being a perpetrator. But I think that's probably what they're talking about when they eliminate people like that. Um, as far as, uh, you know, talking to people and, and you start to zero in somebody and then you clear them. I'm asking for a DNA swab. And Bill and I talked about that, too. Absolutely. And if they're really they're really in the suspect pool, we're, we're going to get the prosecutor's office to get us a, uh, a subpoena to take the DNA. No, there's no question about it. No question. You're, you hit it right on the head. I, I, I just find it, um, you know, what 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 happens is when you have the press so much involved in this thing and they talk about, well, this guy's been eliminated and this guy's been eliminated. You know, it, it, it gets to the point where, you know, the, the cops start to say something because they feel that they're going to be criticized if they don't say something. So, you know, they, they, they throw stuff out there that may very well be something that they should, um, should keep to themselves at least until, uh, until the end of the cases. You know, Mike, we would always say that the press can be your greatest ally and your biggest enemy. Yep, absolutely. Sometimes they release stuff that you do not want released, and it can literally destroy the case. And no they question. don't care. They do not care. And I used to cringe because the NYPD had a policy of being very transparent with the press. Yeah. They gave the press Too whatever the hell they wanted. I yep. used to pull my hair out. No, don't tell them that. Right. And right. people way above my rank said, shut up. You know what? <laughs> One other thing we haven't heard a lot about, what have they, what, I guess I'm sure that they have done something with this, but what about that bar in terms of where, um, where the two girls, the two young women were, um, 
Uh, have they gone to that place? And I would assume that they have to see whether or not there were any, you know, altercations, whether there was anything cra uh, crazy going on, whether there was something that might might lead them to. I haven't heard a thing about the. Like I don't have independent knowledge of that, but that yeah. would be part of the investigation. Also, almost every bar in this land now has video. Yeah, you, you, you know what? Protect themselves, insurance-wise, they have video in the bar. Absolutely, there might be something to that, Mike, because the dad—I think it was Kaylee's dad—did an interview on Saturday night on Fox News, uh, and he said that he was going on the news to do this interview, and that uh, the reporter that he was going to speak to had been very good to him, and he wanted to share some information with him. And the pro uh, the investigators in the case asked him not to share it. Uh, he he said it was related to stuff that the family had uncovered through her phone. Uh, her cell phone. I don't know if it was text messages, emails, uh, calls that she had made. So there yeah. could be something to that because you would think about it. If there's some type of an incident, maybe, uh, you know, some, uh, the girl sent the text, you know, this guy's freaking me out or there was a fight or whatever it is. That's what kids do when, when stuff goes on, they're immediately yeah. on something crazy goes on. They're on social media, reporting it, videoing it. Or if something happens, you know, gossip between kids or whatever, they're texting friends. All oh, you never believe what so-and-so said to me. So there could be something to that, Mike. That's a good point that you brought up. Yeah. Yeah, I think. And, you know, the, what would also add to that, Phil, is that she I think it was Kaylee who, when she got back home, made six or seven or eight yes. calls to her ex-boyfriend. Yes. Yeah. Now, yeah. why was she telling was she trying to tell him that some, you know, punk was bothering her at the bar right. or somebody he knows is bothering? I, you know, that's 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 why I, I they I supposedly left off his good friends. Too. Did he call her back? Did he because he was sleeping? Right. Yeah. Did he, he call her back not knowing she was dead? You know, yeah. Would be, and, and they also they also said that uh, uh, Kaylee, I think it was Kaylee's father, said that they left off as good friends, and that you know uh, they were very very close. So maybe something for her to be calling six and seven times, maybe something did transpire earlier yeah. that night that she wanted to tell him he wanted his advice, his opinion, right. or wanted to exactly. bring him up to speed on something. So again, yeah. all of that stuff is very important. Maybe someone knew. Uh, Charisma, thank you for the 149 super sticker. Thank you, Charisma. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you're not subscribed, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us the thumbs up. If you want to support this podcast, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships. Francesca Camilleri, I want, I want to say it correctly. I wanted to say Calamari, but it's Camilleri. Uh, thank you for that's joining need us. That's why you need us. Yeah, that's that's you mean Galamad, you were going to say, not Calamari. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever uh, say Calamari in front of me, Bill, yeah, please. Uh, that's right. I, I say it the Irish way, you know. But Francesca Camilleri, thank you for joining our YouTube family. Welcome thank aboard you. to uh, Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. You know, this is, um, I mean, we can't lose sight that these are four young, beautiful kids. It's a real uh, sin. It's a real horrendous. sin. Horrendous. We, we, we were all parents. We can't even imagine the horror of this. But this is a, for law enforcement, this is an extremely, extremely challenging case. And we hope that um, that they have the best and the brightest working on this case. And that, uh, you know, one of the things I wanted to say before, Mike, and you were, you were talking about the danger of having too many people work on a case. One of the things I found that was also when you have big egos, you find the big detectives, they try to keep stuff secret just to them and their partner because yeah. they want to make the splash. Yeah. And I, I used to, oh, I used to go crazy over that. 
Yeah. Yep. Say no secret squirrel shit. shit. I don't like that. You know, guys, yeah. guys used to do it all the time, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah. And it would drive yeah. me out of my mind. Don't keep stuff to yourself. The other thing, Mike, before back in the day, when detectives didn't type their DD5s before they went home, and they would have something like a smoking gun piece of information, and you're like, why didn't you type your five? Oh, I was tired. I want to kill you. Get in here. You, they'd have to come back from Rockland County or from yep. Putnam County. Get back into work and type your damn DD5, you know? Yeah. You know, the thing is, you know, we're, we're all human. Everybody is is that involved in, in law enforcement and are human beings. And, you know, mistakes are made. Sometimes they're made on purpose. <laughs> Uh, or, or, or they're kept, as you said, Bill, you know, they're kept, uh, they keep things secret because they want, you know, the glory when they can walk through the perp walk with the guy coming out of the precinct, they want to be there as on one arm and, 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 and hide things so that, you know, you as a Sergeant, uh, can't give it to someone else to, uh, you know, to run with and make the arrest. So, um, it's unfortunate, but it happens. And, you know, I, I, I hate to, you know, I, I just, it, it was, I'd been involved with too many of them to, to, to know, to just fluff it off as being, you know, it happens once or twice. It happens more than that. And it's unfortunate. And I don't know if it's happening here. We don't know, you know, that's the thing we don't know, but, um, but the more people involved and I'll repeat myself, I'll say it for the one last time, the more people involved, the more chance of an issue arising or a problem, you know, coming up or, uh, you know, coming to the surface is, um, is, is, is great. So I just hope that they have narrowed it down to several investigators who are given particular jobs to do and, and, um, and, and to carry the ball, so to speak. Uh, you know, Mike, part of my, well, the biggest part of my job when I was in Manhattan North homicide was to really organize these cases. So that's a big science too. To organize, to organize who does what, uh, to organize where the evidence is going, who's taking the evidence, who's doing the phones. All of that stuff is a huge organizational nightmare. Correct. And Correct. in a case like this, that's where it can go off the rails because who knows how to do that in this department because they've never had a case this big before, you yeah. know? And that's where they hopefully they'll get help. That's where they'll need help. I need you to do this. You you deal with the phones. All right, you deal with the blood evidence. You deal with the vehicle. I mean, it's all unbelievable, time-consuming, and it taxes, it really taxes your brain, especially when you're not sleeping, when you're working 14-hour days and you're eating pizza and Chinese food. That's where we eat in New York. I don't think they eat that in Idaho. Yeah. In Idaho, they may be eating potato pancakes. I don't know. What we eat nymphids in Coney Island, so we used to grab a hot dog and French fries. On yeah, the I, right. The, we used to call it cop food. You eat the yeah. have the worst diet: pizza, hot dogs, Chinese. Oh, what do you? Listen, I, you're right. I can remember being out at precincts with taking statements. It's like two or three o'clock in the morning, and these guys, the cops say, "What do you want to eat?" And I say, "Are you crazy? I'm not. I know where. I know where you're going to get something. I'm not." I don't want to eat any of that stuff. I'll, I'll wait till I get home. Oh, and Mike, the worst, the most evil food on earth was White Castle. Yeah. Guys, oh. in three, guys in the 3-2 squad. Belly bombers. Yeah. White Castle suitcases. I was like, I will not eat that stuff. Right. But that's the one. But there were there were a lot of reasons to go to the 6-0 to, uh, you know, to do do the statements. The best one, though, was was 
uh, was Nathan's. And well, what are you going to say, L and B or? Uh, no, no, I was going to say. I thought you were going to say Godjulios. Oh, Godjulios! Wow, Godjulios! You had to sit down. And, yeah, and that's that was. Yeah. I'm talking. Guys, about I, I, I'd like to dine. I will. I prefer not to eat fast yeah. food. <laughs> you you want to know the truth, Mike? When I worked in the six zero squad, I was there from eighty nine to ninety six. We very rarely got a chance to go sit down and eat. A lot of times, it was Chinese food, like Bill said, Nathan's, and yeah. it's funny because we used to have, you know, the the, the manager Nathan's would give the precinct uh, these coupons where you know they had the specials. You know, hot dogs were a dollar. And so you get four or five hot dogs for a, a couple of bucks and an order of French fries. And that was your dinner. You know, everything was done on the fly because a lot of times we'd be working a homicide, you know, maybe like three, four hours into the tour, we'll catch a homicide. We're on it. Now it's 10, 11 o'clock at night. And another, another homicide happened or another shooting. And oh, yeah. we were all over the map. Coney Island was busy back in those days. And yep. uh, I'm sure you remember you, you were, that's why I, I knew I was going to offend someone with that potato remark. And someone wrote, I yeah. live in Moscow. We don't grow potatoes up north, only down south. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but I also uh, disparaged New York by skin and cops, but we only eat pizza and Chinese food when we're working on a case. And well, then the White Castle, you know. <laughs> and you know what the most impressive thing about that is? That there's someone in Moscow, Idaho, listening to us right now. So yeah, well, you know, people, one of the that's, things that people like great. across the country, they like to hear on New York accents, believe yeah. it or not. <laughs> Phil, want to take care of this here? Sure. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a gym? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702, or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe is a great criminal defense attorney, and we only bring the best on this show like we have tonight with Mike Vecchione, former Brooklyn prosecutor. Folks, Mike Vecchione is uh, not just a former Brooklyn prosecutor, but I'm going to put his books up on the screen again so you can buy these books. You can get this on Amazon. On Amazon, Homicide is My Business, Luigi the Zip. And he also has another book out called Crooked Brooklyn. I know he's got a bunch more, but I wasn't going to put all of his books tonight. That's uh, enough. That's for, okay. That's enough you know, guys, pitch for him. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Since I was here, both, well, Homicide is my business is now on an, it's now out on audio book as well. So, um, and it could, and Amazon has it as well as Barnes and Noble. So, uh, but thank you very much for the, uh, for the, for the pitch, Bill. I You're very welcome. It. You know, Mike, I just thought, you know, there's been so much analysis on this case and Phil and I really come from the practitioner uh, basis of that real homicide guys that think that the way to solve cases is to get out on the street and shake the tree, shake the trees and see what comes out of the trees. We even talked about the other night interviewing the criminal element, go into the jails, go in, start interviewing parolees, interview the sex offenders, get out there, shake the tree. That's how you get information. Who do you think bad guys hang out with? Other bad guys. Yeah. Who do bad guys tell things to? Other bad guys. So we took a little piece of uh, New York policing and recommended that they do some of that. Well, I think that is a very good, a very good thing, a very good uh, uh, suggestion. Um, uh, well, and it's funny you mentioned it because I can recall that I've done a lot of trials, as you guys probably have figured out, and a lot of them had to do with with informants, guys, wise guys who were turned and things of that nature. And and I had a case once with the every witness in the case, eyewitness or 
not civilian. I'm sorry, not a, not a scientist or or a police officer was a was a was a wise guy, and um, or a hanger on, and um, and and I know what was going through the jury's mind, because the defense attorney would put it in their mind. You can't believe these guys, and I stood up and I said the best people, the only people who you can believe when they're talking about the kind of you know scum that's at the table, the defense table, are the guys who hang with him. Are the yeah. people who who are with these guys? Who do you think they talk to? They talk to their own. These that's those are the best witnesses you can possibly get. So you know your suggestion about shaking the trees out in Idaho is is a is a very good suggestion. And um, every person that's arrested in that area should be debriefed. Every absolutely. single person from the minute that this case started, anybody that's arrested or even if they were released, go find them, debrief them. There could be some information. Yeah. You know, we'll help you out with your case. You know the game, Mike. So that's that's I'm sure they should be doing it. They probably are. Francesca Camilleri, thank you for the five dollar super chat. My grandpa was a sergeant in the seven five. I'm an NYPD recruit. All love. Good luck to you, Francesca. Good luck. Uh, Good what luck. They, they say um, the NYPD is the the front row seat to the greatest show, greatest on show in the world. And I guess yeah. it's it's still true. And I certainly had a fabulous career. I know Phil had a fabulous Ditto. career. We got Lieutenant Pete Pranzo in the chat. Who's a Harlem Raiders? Is his book. He's a he's a street crime legend, a three two legend, and you know, as much as we carry the scars of being on the police department for uh, my case, it's almost twenty seven years. Phil, twenty one or twenty two, uh, it's you would never give it up for anything in the world. But you know, we do carry the scars. You carry the bad memories, and so I'm sure Mike, you do too. Uh, oh yeah, as a prosecutor. I'm sure you have some PTSD stuff pops into your head in the middle of the night and you're like, uh, you're not going to run out and get White Castle. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. You know what I do now? I sit down at the computer and I write it because I use it somewhere in one of the books. That's, so, right. that's what I've been doing. So the, um, it's, um, but you're right. You can't do this job without having it affect you in some way. And if it doesn't affect you, then you shouldn't be doing the job because, you know, then you're a robot. And, and robots can't solve crimes. Listen, opinion. a lot of it is, uh, you know, stuff that we see causes PTSD. But I really believe, and I was talking about this today with my partner, Artie Williams and Patty Boyle, because we're going to be doing a segment on New York homicide about an old case. We were talking about how when the perpetrators, sit, you're sitting in a room, you're face to face with a guy two, three feet away, and he's telling you in detail about how he killed someone, a matter of factly. That's got to affect you because there were times yep. when I say that I met the devil and trust me, I did. I met the devil on several occasions doing uh, interview and interrogation in that, in the box, as they say. And uh, it, 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 it plays with your mind a little bit because there's times when you're hearing this guy talk about this horrendous thing and you're saying, am I really supposed to be here hearing this? But you are, that's what your job is. And you know, when you fight for the victim, you do, we always say it, we, we do God's work. We, you know, we, we do, uh, the, we have the, the obligation and we have the, uh, you know, this, this tremendous, uh, uh, responsibility to get justice for the people that can't get justice for themselves. They can't speak no more. They're dead. So we've been given that privilege and we have to do it and we have to take it seriously and always did. And, uh, it's really something that is very unique when you get that, you know, when you're the case detective or you're working on that homicide, you get that feeling you're doing it for that person and the family. No question. That's no longer here. And, and to me, the best thing, the, the best way to end a particular case was after a conviction, 
stepping out of the courtroom and having the family of the victim, you know, come up to you and thank you. And I've gotten many hugs and kisses and for, for you know, for giving closure to uh, to the family. And, um, and and I remember every one of them, guys. I remember every one of those imagine. because it's uh, it was it's very important. But, you know, in the PS PTSD thing, you know, I, I sit back sometimes now and I think about this, about some of the people that I've had as who who've come in. One guy who was a longtime wise guy, um, and I had him as an informant for a year in 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 Manhattan. I'm sorry, in Manhattan. He lived in Manhattan in the MDC, uh, MCC in, in federal in the federal facility, but he was coming to Brooklyn all the time. And we had him for a year, and um, and he told us everything about his life, everything. And he you know talked about how his father taught him how to kill people, and 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 it and you know at the end of that year. When we had to send them back to uh, to Admax in Colorado, the people who had dealt with him, we took pictures with this guy. We were in, you know, in 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 a conference room, and and we had gotten coffee, and we had, you know, our arms around each other and taking pictures. And I thought about it later on, and I said, "What was that all about? How do you, you know, how do you get or develop a relationship with someone who was who was a mass?" essentially a mass murderer. Stockholm guy, syndrome. Yeah. This guy, this guy stopped counting. He said when he got to 27 and Luigi, the same, same thing with this guy that I wrote this book about when he, when I left with left him, I, I said to myself later on, I had a relationship with this guy and, and, and he wound up killing six, 13 people. If I had to tell my father and my mother and my grandmother about this this guy and what I spent, how much time I spent with him, they would have thought that I was absolutely crazy. But, you know, that's part of the job. And maybe we are a little bit crazy to do this. But but there's a there's something that that, you know, you 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 develop when you do this work. And um, and it's not necessarily the right thing, because I don't think being with these guys is the right thing. But at the time, in order to get to the point where you wanted to get, which is to put a bad guy in jail, you have to be with them. And, and that's what sometimes how it you know sometimes affects you. But it's still here, man. I, I remember those days as if it was yesterday. You know? Absolutely. So, Kinsey K, thank you so much. Thank you. For the $50 Super Chat. Thanks for keeping this case front and center. You know, Good. my feelings are that this case is going to get solved. I really believe that. I agree with you, Bill. I believe it's going to get solved through science and through forensic evidence, but someone's going to answer for this. And, you know, that person, whoever it is, deserves the death penalty. And I know they do have the death penalty in Idaho. Let's hope that they capture this guy. Good. And get yeah. Guys, we're going to, um, we're at an hour and 10 minutes. Phil, I'm going to let you um, give final thoughts and I'll go to Mike and then I'll say goodbye to everyone. Final thoughts are going to be, I really feel strongly about a prosecution coming forward in this case and an arrest because we know certain things that have been publicly stated. We know from, uh, I believe it was uh, Kaylee's father. Yes, Kaylee's father said that uh, the police told him not to give certain information out to the public, to the press. So, And there's probably a slew of things that he may not even know. I'm fairly confident this case is going to go. They're probably building a case, working on the forensics. Like I said before, let's hope sooner rather than later. And let's keep these people and their families in your thoughts and prayers. Yep. Mike, final thoughts. The uh, the person who did this left the piece of himself in that house. 
I don't know what that piece is, but the science is going to find it, analyze, anal, uh, analyze it, and that's going to be the thing that that points to the killer here. And um, and when it does, um, not enough bad things can happen to him. He needs to be tried, obviously, according to the law. But um, I think that if the case is made properly, then um, then he's going to go away for a long time. Or he may suffer the death penalty if if Idaho has one. And I believe, Bill, you said that they do. So, yeah, I believe they do. Yeah. I mean, but it's so hard to get the death penalty these days because it right. goes for endless appeals forever, you know. But my, you know, my prayers are, uh, are with the families of those those four young, young people. So. Absolutely. Folks, I just want to really thank everyone uh, for staying with us and supporting us through this case. This is a, you know, sometimes we cover these cases and believe it or not, I feel like I'm back on the job and I get sometimes feel a certain level of PTSD doing these you cases on, uh, on YouTube and I'm not even working the cases, you know. It's not our job to investigate these cases. It's just to, to review them and to make suggestions and say how we would do certain things. But I feel the pain uh, in a lot of these cases, and I feel the stress of actually having worked, uh, like almost working a real homicide. So, folks, again, thank you so much for supporting Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I want to thank Phil Grimaldi and my guest, former Brooklyn Assistant District Attorney and author, Michael Vecchioni. Have a great night, guys. Thank, thank you so thank much. Thank you for having me. Stay safe, and thank you, Mike. Thank you very much. One episode, just sitting in the dark.